All right, so we're looking at the day of Pentecost, looking at the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, John Stott, the great Scottish preacher, uh, said that without the Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the Spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the Spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from His fruit, and no effective witness without His power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. Luke is well aware of this. Of the four evangelists, it is he who lays the heaviest emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And so on this day that we see the Holy Spirit poured out upon uh, Christ followers, the early church, we see what's called a revival when there's a great impact in a people group. That word revival is a word that denotes one of those altogether unusual visitations from God where a whole community is vividly aware of his immediate overpowering presence. And uh, we see that at the end of chapter two, we'll see some 3,000 people get saved because of the move of the Holy Spirit as they come to know Jesus. Howard Marshall writes that the day of Pentecost here in Acts 2 indicates that the last days have arrived. And so we have kind of two big things happening here. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit to make uh, witnessing effective and revivals possible. Also the ushering in of the day of the Lord, the beginning of what are called the last days. So let's get into the text, huh? Chapter two, verse one. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. So it's a special holiday. It's that day of Pentecost. It was the second one of the annual harvest festivals. It would come about 50 days after Passover. And it had two main points, Passover. It was agricultural, number one. They were celebrating the harvest and the wheat harvest. And so it was kind of like we have our harvest carnivals, you know, on October 31st and celebrate the harvest. Uh, This was kind of their harvest carnival as an agricultural celebration. But it was also historical, It was also spiritual. It was where they would remember the renewed covenants to Noah and to Moses. And so there was this spiritual aspect of it as well as men would come to Jerusalem to wait on the Lord, as we just sang. I will wait for you, surely wait for you. That was uh, what was happening there uh, with the Feast of Pentecost. I like what John Chrysostom said. He's, he's one of my sources that I'll be reading through Acts, and so you'll hear a lot about him. A third century preacher, the Bishop of Constantinople, or now known as Istanbul. And I've mentioned it a lot. I won't say it every single time, but something great about Chrysostom. He was such a good preacher that his name Chrysostom actually means golden-tongued or golden-mouthed. And when he would preach, people would applaud at his preaching. And so one day he did a special sermon on no more applauding while I'm preaching. And uh, everyone ended up applauding at that sermon as well. And so it was like, oh gosh, I guess I can't get out of this one. You know, um, but Chrysostom, Golden Tongue, got a great commentary I'm reading. Uh, it's my second time through it called Homilies, Homilies in the Book of Acts. And uh, he writes this, do you perceive the type? What is this Pentecost? The time when the sickle was to be laid to the harvest 
and the ingathering was made. See now the reality when the time was come to put the sickle of the word. For here as the sickle keen edge came, the spirit down. For hear the words of Christ. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they're white already for the harvest. The harvest is truly great, but the workers are few. And so I just like that Christendom, you know, it's like it was there to celebrate the sickle against the wheat on Pentecost day. But what ended up happening? The sickle of the Holy Spirit came and made the preaching of the word powerful so that the harvest could be reaped that Jesus spoke of. Behold, look up and and see that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers, they are few. And so when the day of Pentecost, isn't that helpful? Have you ever read the book of Acts? You're like, and when the day of Pentecost did fully come, you know, and you're kind of like, you know, um, but to know what the day of Pentecost was, we studied that a lot in John. Do you remember Jesus would be going to Jerusalem for the different feasts and he would preach about things like torrents of living water flowing out of you, or you're the light of the world, things like that, uh, that had to do with the feasts that were happening. Well, here's the day of Pentecost and, and there's, uh, there's great typology there for us in that, uh, it had fully come. And all were with one accord, you see, or they were in one place. We saw that in chapter one at the end last week, where 120 Christians were regularly together for 10 days waiting on the Lord, just like Jesus said in Acts chapter one, go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the father for John had truly baptized with water, but now I'm going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So they went back down into Jerusalem. They were praying. They were in one accord. Uh, you know, I've spent a lot of my life in Corvallis, you know, uh, and there's a, a Honda dealership there called University Honda. And one of the managers of this dealership went to Calvary Corvallis and, and would just hook people up on deals on Hondas. And so, you know, college students and gas efficiency and all of that, everybody drove a Honda, you know, and we had a couple of Hondas and and uh, we always would make the joke, you know, that when everybody is together in one accord, that it's tight spaces, you know what I'm saying? It's like, if you're together in one accord, you've really, you know, you're having some good intense fellowship, no doubt. It was a bigger laugh first service, I'm not going to lie to you. But <laughs> okay, let's just, get it, just get it out, okay. Uh, but they were all in one place. Now Luke kind of begins this chapter with a matter-of-fact reference of the time and the place that the Holy Spirit fell. They're there in Jerusalem, um, assembled together with that one accord. We studied that word was used in chapter one already, homothamadon, okay? And it speaks of a unity of mind. It's a special word that's only found 12 times in the New Testament. 10 of those times are used by uh, Luke in the book of Acts. And so he really pushes that the early church had the practice of being together, praying together, waiting on the Lord, being in one accord. And if you can use your imagination right now, imagine a room of 120 people in harmony of mind, praying and worshiping and waiting on the Lord. Oh, wait. I mean, I don't know about 120, but we're just about there. You know, first service was a little more. You can kind of get that feel. Man, wasn't it? I love watching Adam grow in leading worship. You know, I remember when 
he first was starting to play and kind of break out the rust off of some of his old gifts. I was like, you need to start leading worship, man, you know, and, uh, and just to hear his voice just growing better. And did you catch some of those beautiful harmonies that were happening up here on the stage and steel, where'd steel come from man? helping sing on the stage and joy. I was just thinking, joy, what beautiful harmonies you had, but we're just in one accord. We're all together singing in harmony, focused on one thing, uh, the glory of the Lord. Well, that's what was happening there on that day. And so well, what happened, Rory? Get to it. So we know it's Pentecost. We know it's, the, you know it's in Jerusalem. We know they're all together. Well, verse two, suddenly there came the sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So you guys know when sudden things happen, you know, it's kind of like, whoa, you know, uh, we've all had different experiences where, and then it just happened, you know? So they're just, they're praying 10 days has gone by that they're just waiting on the Lord and praying. And then boom, you know, uh, the Holy spirit moves in their midst. Suddenly there are three supernatural signs that will happen. Three supernatural signs. Forgive my alliteration. I didn't even plan on this, but it works that way. The signs are sound, sight, and speech. Okay? Sound, sight, and speech. So here's the sound that we see on the day of Pentecost. It was a sound that came from heaven. And it was of a mighty, maybe your translation says violent, rushing, driving wind. You know, I I think of when I was... Before I moved to Prineville 13 years ago, I went and prayed about starting a church in Casper, Wyoming. Never had been to Wyoming, just knew that God was calling me to uh, go over there, you know, and uh, to start a church. So we, I drove, flew out over there and uh, spent time walking around the town. And one thing about Casper is it is super windy. Like it is so windy. It's just flat, except for a little bit of the Rocky Mountains right up on the edge of it there. And have any of you ever ridden a motorcycle and, or ridden in the back of a truck or something and the wind is blowing at you and it starts going up your nose and it starts messing with your brain and you can't breathe right? Any, am I the only one? You're like, you know, um, I remember as a kid being like, gotta stop it, you know, and, uh, that's walking down the street in Casper. You're like, uh, you're getting this, you know, well, and I just remember watching trees bent all the way over, you know, and uh, watching one lady walk into a store and her hair was completely sideways like this. Well, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I went into the chamber of commerce and was just, well, what's Casper like? What kind of jobs are around here? And visiting with the lady, I says, is it always this windy here? And she goes, let me show you something. And she opens up a drawer and her hairbrush and her curling iron and her blow dryer were in the drawer. She goes, I do my hair at work, you know? And so really, you know, and as you can see, we're in Prineville. So, um, but, uh, so, you know, a mighty rushing wind. Now, what we have here though, is just the sound. It was the, we don't get the sense that, and hair started blowing all around and all the papers started flying around. You know, it was this sound of this violent, rushing, driving wind uh stott says it may have symbolized the power of the holy spirit chrysostom says this betokens the exceeding vehemence of the spirit the the fiery power of the holy spirit when he came on this day it was evident that there was a powerful one in the room in verse three we see the other signs then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. So the next thing was this divided tongues 
it was a sight that they saw. It, it was, uh, there were these fiery things there. In the Greek, it's the word glossa. So you kind of have a sound and a sight all at once upon each one of these Christians as a symbol of the gift of tongues these people were going to be given. They, they were tongues of fire. Fire in the Old Testament speaks of the presence of God, especially his burning holiness and his purity, consuming everything that's impure. The book of Hebrews speaks of our God being a consuming fire. And as they're there, they're all, verse 4, filled with the Holy Spirit. And they begin to speak with other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. And so there's these uh, cloven tongues upon the head with the, with the same source of the Spirit. And then there's the sound now um, of, this, uh, of the tongues and of the language. Now let's pull verse 4 apart here. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. We've been studying the Holy Spirit the last few weeks. And in this moment, they're filled up with the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, it speaks of a continual filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this, it, you'll see it all throughout the book of Acts. From this point on, when the early church is filled with the Holy Spirit, it's this continual filling. And it's important when you're studying your Bible to look at the breakdown of the words and the parsing of the verbs. And so you see here, it's in the tense of continually happening from this point on. Uh, as Jesus says, out of your hearts will flow torrents of living water. This is the beginning of the source that day. The Holy Spirit came upon them and out of their hearts from this point on would continually flow living water. Uh, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. And so again, this word tongues is used. It's glossa or glossolalia in the Hebrew, and it speaks of languages, and it symbolizes the universality of the church. We'll, we'll look later in Revelation chapter 5 that when you're around the throne room of heaven in the end, you'll see a representation from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and they'll all be worshiping the Lord in their heart language. Uh, over the course of this week and next, we're going to be doing a two-part series looking at the gift of tongues, looking at the gift of tongues in the New Testament, how do we know how to use this gift uh, in 2022 Prineville? I'm going to give you some 17 points from the New Testament to inform you on the gift of tongues. Now, we want to be careful because this passage isn't about the gift of tongues. That's not the main purpose there. We see the, the fulfilling of this covenant, the promise of the Holy Spirit, so that Christians can now live in powerful witness of the Lord. This is the dawning of a new age, the age of the Spirit and the day of the Lord, the end times. And so there's, it's a big day, this day of Pentecost, uh, not about tongues. However, it is really one of the first mentionings of the gift of tongues in the New Testament. We're going to be coming across it quite a bit in the book of Acts. And so we're going to help inform ourselves by looking at the word and know how to use this gift in the church, if we should even be using it at all in these days, okay? So uh, number one, all of you are note takers, um, tongues is given by the Holy Spirit. Do you notice there at the end of the verse that the Spirit gave them utterance? They spoke as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. So it's given by the Holy Spirit. This verse is also translated as the Holy Spirit enabled them, they spoke in tongues, or as the Holy Spirit prompted them, they spoke in tongues. Now I want to make it clear that the gift of tongues is not 
the manifestation of being baptized with the Holy Spirit in a person's life. It's a manifestation. When you look through the book of Acts, there are times when someone speaks in tongues after having been baptized with the Holy Spirit, but not every time. I believe that the main evidence that someone's baptized with the Holy Spirit is that they have boldness to share the gospel with people. They have courage and bravery to open up their mouth and make known the mystery of God, even if it means they'll die for it. I believe that is the evidence. However, you do see from time to time tongues being a sign that someone's been baptized uh, in the Holy Spirit. I might also note that this is a descriptive passage uh, rather than prescriptive in the sense that this is the only time that we see the fire come upon people's head when the Holy Spirit falls. You don't see that anywhere else in the scriptures, okay? This is the only time where there's the sound of the rushing mighty witness. This wasn't replicated. But we do see some other times where tongues is also uh, evident there. So um, it's a description of something that happened rather than a prescription of something that has to happen every time the Holy Spirit may come. D.L. Moody wrote of this moment, that this was where the power to make saving impressions upon others now became present in Christians' lives. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who gives the gift of tongues. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, chapter 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians addresses spiritual gifts to the Corinthians. They had been uh, excited because they had had an outpouring of the spirit. There were a lot of spiritual gifts being used. Paul says, you've come short in no spiritual gift. There had been misuse of spiritual gifts that Paul's going to be correcting in chapters 12 uh, and 14. Now, 12, 13, 14, we're going to have a list of spiritual gifts in chapter 12. We're going to have encouragement about those gifts. Chapter th- 13, we're going to see, hey, really want to know what the greatest gift of them all is? Love, all right? Love one another. Uh, that famous wedding passage, right? First Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter is sandwiched between chapters about talking in tongues and prophesying. You ever think about that? And so the next wedding I do, we're going to just like talk a whole lot about prophecy and tongues. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, so uh, spiritual gifts, the love chapter, and then how do you use the gift of tongues and prophecy, and what would be right order for that gift? So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, we're not going to read all of it for the sake of time, but in this first verse, it says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. All right, so uh, it's funny because Paul says a couple times in the New Testament, here's a couple topics that I don't want you to be ignorant about. And guess what? They happen to be the topics that the church avoids and doesn't want to talk about, okay? One of them is spiritual gifts. One of them is in Romans chapters 9 through 11, God's plan for Israel, okay? One of them is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Old Testament. That's a section of the word that many Christians are ignorant We did a high school camp when I was a high school pastor where the whole camp, we did an outline of the Old Testament for the high school kids to know the Old Testament. And the sweatshirt that we printed said, I read the Old Testament too, you know? Uh, And so, sadly, so many people are ignorant about the Old Testament. And 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that these are the things that are written so that we might know how to obey the Lord. And and there's an example of how not to disobey the Lord. Like, don't disobey the Lord. So there's warnings in the Old Testament for us. Um, And so uh, we don't want to be ignorant about spiritual gifts because they can be scary sometimes. It's a spiritual thing. 
A lot of times we live in this natural world where we just don't see a lot of that. Go to other countries, you guys, where we go in Nepal, people see demons. Like villages together see demons. We go to a place where a witch doctor got saved, went up to where a demon would appear to the village regularly, and the new born-again witch doctor rebukes this giant demon and frees the village from the oppression, and the whole village knows that it was Jesus that kicked this scary thing out of there. Okay, so you go to other countries, they see stuff. We're kind of all about like, oh, better get my McDonald's, you know, oh, you know, better hop in my brand new Ford F-350, oh, you know, and we just, we just don't operate in that very often. So we're, we've also seen abuse of spiritual gifts and misuse of spiritual gifts. And so that causes us to like, I don't want to be a part of that. We're afraid the Lord would be angry with us for maybe misusing those spiritual gifts. And you know what Martin Luther said, he, he said it concerning like Christian liberties, he said, you know what? Misuse doesn't take away proper use. So we want to come to the word and just see, hey, you know, let's look at maybe there's been misuse of some spiritual gifts, but how would the Lord maybe have us still use them and use them properly? Okay. Um, so in first Corinthians chapter 12, there's a list of spiritual gifts. We see that it's the Lord that gives those gifts at the end of verse 10. And to another person is given different kinds of tongues and to another the interpretation of tongues. So there's a list of spiritual gifts for the sake of time today. We're not going to go through all of those, but one person is given uh, the gift of tongues to another person is given the gift of interpretation of tongues, a great companion gift, a necessary gift, but one in the same spirit works all these things distributing to each one individually as he wills. That's very important, all right? Um, We remember that it's he who gives them utterance. He distributes the spiritual gifts as he wills and as he sees fit. It's his grace. That removes from us jealousy that I don't have a gift that somebody else has. That removes from us um, uh, anger. That removes from us discouragement or depression or pride and haughtiness because I have the gift that everybody else wants. We realize it's all God's grace and he gives the gifts to individuals as he wills. Hop over to 1 Corinthians 12, 28, or don't hop, just follow the screen. It's up to you. Uh, God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. And so within the church, there's a usefulness of a variety of tongues. And then there's some rhetorical questions that are asked. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? It's kind of a rhetorical question hour with Paul there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You don't have to answer, but the answer is no. Not everybody's an apostle. Not everybody's a prophet. Not everybody teaches not everybody speaks in tongues and not everybody interprets a tongue, okay? But then we're told, earnestly desire the best gift. So there's been a list of gifts. Not everybody has the same gifts. We're like a human body that each person has a different gift and they're all useful. Like some of you are just the thumbs and where would we be without our thumbs? You know, some of you are the eyes of the church. Some of you are the ears. Some of you are the little hangy ball in the back of the throat that nobody's sure what that does, but we're glad you're here today. Um, you know, but we're all different. But Heidi, I'm just kidding. You're not the hangy ball in the back. Okay. All right. But, uh, 
but earnestly desire the best gift. And you know what? I think our experience tells us what the Bible confirms, that um, the Bible tells us what, you know what I mean, Uh, is that the best gift is the gift that's needed at the moment. We need help with this, or this person needs comforted, or this situation needs a generous person to step up, or this area within the church needs administration and governance and leadership. You know, there's so many different gifts, and the one, the best gift is where we're at right now, and we need someone to come and help empower in this way, all right? And then 1 Corinthians 12 ends with, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And then he goes into the love passage. Love is the more excellent way. Now, if you'll bear with me, it's a little crazy, giving you 17 points on tongues over the next two weeks, okay? And I gave you a whole bunch, I think, in the first one, so you're welcome. There were some bonus points in there just for you. All right, now we're going to hop back to the narrative of what Peter was going through on the day of Pentecost because uh, all all, all of the crowd around had a response to this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So we'll go back to our text, Acts 2, verse 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem <clears throat> Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So many Jews were in Jerusalem for the feast of Passover, for these harvest feasts. And if they were dwelling in Jerusalem, it was a given that they were pretty pious people. And look at verse 6. When the sound occurred, the multitude came together And they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. And so we have just this list of nations. You know, Luke has intention of showing the international impact that the day of Pentecost had. And he's going to give us this list of different nations represented and different languages that are represented. And he kind of lists them out from the east over to the west. And I have a map there for you to show where these areas are. This can be helpful because it's kind of like, what's the day of Pentecost? That means nothing to me. Um, also, what are, what's with all these lists of nations? That means nothing to me. And so let's just look. First of all, he starts out with Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and those dwelling in Mesopotamia. So on the right side of your screen, you have this area that Jews have lived in since the captivities of Israel and Judah. A couple weeks ago, we fasted through the book of Isaiah. We fasted and we read the word. And we did history lessons through Isaiah of what was going on in Isaiah's time. And we heard about Israel being taken captive by Assyria, Judah being taken captive by Babylon, both of these nations taking Israel over to the east. And, and while they were allowed to return about 70 years later, there still was some remnants of people that lived in these areas and that would come back for these different feasts. And so there in Jerusalem, you've got people that speak languages that they were born in that are from the regions of Parthia, uh, Mesopotamia, the Elamites, all of those that are over there in the east. And then 
another geographical area and language are mentioned of Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Persia and Pamphylia. So you see up by Asia there, those are all nations within Asia Minor that are represented. And when you read the book of Acts around chapter 14, we see Paul's first missionary journey. He's going to go up and penetrate into there and there's going to be synagogues and Jews, people that he's going to preach the gospel to uh, that uh, were there on the day of Pentecost uh, as well. Then there's the reference to North Africa, to Egypt, to Libya, parts of Libya that uh, join uh, Cyrene. If you look north of Libya there, you see Cyrene right on the coast, uh, coastland. Uh, that's all North Africa. You've got visitors from Rome there in Europe. You've got Jews who are in Rome and proselytes. You read of Aquila and Priscilla later on around chapter 16, uh, see, about chapter 17 of the book of Acts. Aquila and Priscilla were some of those Jews that lived in Rome that would end up getting kicked out of Rome. And, uh, and then there's this mention of Cretans. Uh, right north of Libya there in the ocean, you see kind of a long, narrow island. That's Crete, okay? And so there were Jewish Cretans there on the day of Pentecost who are experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit. And then Arabs. Now, someone wrote, an Arabs looks like an afterthought there because now all of a sudden he's back over talking about the desert area, you know, of Saudi Arabia. But essentially there's something of a 16 or 17 different languages, different uh, people that are mentioned here, different tongues that are being spoken. And it says here, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful work of God. Now you've got to imagine, these are people that have come from all around the world to, you know, and maybe even feel like sometimes, man, my Hebrew's a little rusty, you know, I don't always know what everyone's saying. Or, and, but man, now all of a sudden, you're walking through, you know, the market quarters of Jerusalem, the old city, you know, and you start hearing somebody over here speaking your Cretan language. You know, it's quite a surprise. And, and, they begin, and they're fluent at it. And you know, what is this incredible? And what are they saying? Well, it's important to note that you hear them talking about the wonderful works of God. And so verse 12 tells us, they were all amazed and confused or perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? So have, have you put yourselves, <coughs> excuse me, have you put yourself, yourself in their shoes at this moment? Uh, if you've ever been to another country and you're the only one there speaking English and you're like, man, the one thing about Nepal when we go to Nepal is like, it's all Nepali. You know, you go to Europe, you go to um, Hungary, you go to Israel. There's the language up there, Hungarian, Hebrew, and then underneath, just a great token to all of us, you know, it's in English as well. You go to Nepali, there's no English. And you just like, it is a difficult thing to travel through Nepal without a translator and you feel out of place. Here, they're hearing their language, and they're hearing something special. They're hearing the marvelous works of God. Whatever could this mean? I like what uh, Stott says. He says, the speakers were known to be Galileans who had a reputation for being uncultured. They also had a difficulty in pronouncing gutturals. I had to look all this stuff up. Um, uncultured, I know what that is. You know, that fits me pretty good, right? Um, gutturals, when you're speaking of linguistics, it's sounds in your speech that kind of come more from the throat. I I just did it there a little bit, a little bit of a gritty, you know, something like that, right? Hey, you know, um, and, and the Galileans had a hard time pronouncing anything that was 
guttural or from the throat. And you know, other languages are so different. Um, when you go to Israel and they speak in Hebrew, there's a lot of, you know, um, there's a lot of that, you know, um, maybe not exactly that. I think the spittoon is left out of their language, but, uh, but also Stott writes that the Galileans had a habit of swallowing syllables when speaking. So you should have seen me at my desk as I was studying swallowing syllables while speaking. I was like, what would that, how do you, I barely know what a syllable is, you know, but I'm just trying to think. And, uh, I'm not, I'm not saying go rent this movie or whatever, but I, I went to the, the guy in Waterboy that is like a redneck guy. And when he talks, he's kind of like, and everyone's like, I'm not sure. You know, that's essentially what a Galilean, and, uh, you know, I'm being nice, you know, you're talking to a guy from Lakeview, you know, so I've spent my time as a Galilean, all right? Uh, when I was in high school, I uh, lived in Corvallis, you know, and if you know anything about Corvallis, white collar, right? Ironed out, starched, right? White collar, home of Hewlett Packard, home of Oregon State University, right? And uh, I went to Crescent Valley High School for one year. Now, I don't know how I ended up at Crescent Valley High School. I lived on the other side of the track, I should have gone to Corvallis High School, right? I, live, I went to high school with the Valley kids, with the brand new cars and the, you know, the speedy motorcycles and all that kind of stuff. I didn't belong there. But I remember going to a basketball game and sitting with people and hearing them talk about Sweet Home. You know, so North Corvallis people talking about Sweet Home. Oh, the armpit of Oregon and blah, blah, blah. And the relationships among family members and this and the other, you know, and I'm like... Yeah, totally. Sweet home, you know. And then I moved to Lakeview the next year, and I was like, I wonder what they'd think of Lakeview, you know. And, uh, and I, don't, I don't know if you guys know, but before you get haughty, I don't know if you know how people think of Prineville if they live, say, in the Bend area, you know. But we're the Galileans, you guys, so <clears throat> takes one to know one, right? And so uh, no wonder that the crowd's response was one of bewilderness. These are people that swallowed their syllables and can't pronounce the gutturals. And so some were amazed and then, and then wondered, what does this mean? Whatever could this mean? But others, verse 13, mocked, saying they are full of new wine. Now, one guy wrote and he said, you know, they're mocking, they're joking, so don't take it too personally. But reading Chrysostom, he goes, oh, the excessive folly. Oh, the excessive malignity. Men therefore mocked. Oh, this effrontery. I had to look up effrontery and malignity and front, effrontery. It's essentially like rude mockery, right? Um, insulting. And he says, what a wonder is it is since even the Lord himself, when he was casting out demons, was told that he himself has a demon. And you know, these, these people, the crowd, I mean, they're teetering on a slippery slope because uh, the context of that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit passage, you know what I'm talking about? One sin that won't be forgiven, man, is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And everyone fears, have I committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, the context of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was when people attributed to Jesus's power of casting out demons to he himself being a demon. Like when you take the marvelous works of God and attribute it to demonic stuff, you've hardened your heart against God. Here you have the Holy Spirit being poured out and mockery calling it drunkenness. No wonder Chrysostom, oh, the effrontery. Amen. I still don't know what effrontery is, but okay. And so moving on, I'm going to give you point two out of 17. 
for the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is speaking a language that you are not taught by natural means. Now, this can be a language that's one of many earthly dialects, or it could be a heavenly language. Here we see it's earthly dialects. Some 17 other tongues are represented there and hear their, uh, hear their language with a message that makes sense. Others might be from 1 Corinthians 13.1, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels that I have not loved. So, so perhaps it's more of an angelic language as one speaks in tongues. I know if you read Chuck Smith's book on the Holy Spirit called Living Water, when there's a chapter about tongues, he writes of his wife, Kay. And one night at kind of an afterglow, just a time waiting on the Lord uh, at Calvary Costa Mesa, Kay spoke out in a tongue and they waited for uh, the interpreter. And uh, later on that evening, a woman came up to Kay and said, I'm curious uh, as to where you learned aristocratic French. And uh, Kay said, I don't even know French. What are you talking about? And the woman said, I, well, I'm a professor of aristocratic French. It's a language that's no longer in use today. And you just spoke it fluently. Where did you learn this? And then, and, and you were saying out all these wonderful works of God. And so it was just a great example in Smith's book about, you know, maybe it's a language that helps point people to Jesus. We'll see that later in chapter 14. Uh, so it's a language that you would not have learned by natural means. Number three, the gift of tongues. Tongues are declaring the marvelous works of God. So that's what we see here. When they're hearing 17 languages speaking out uh, by Galileans, what are they hearing? They're hearing essentially worship to God, declaring the praises of God, the marvelous works of God. In Acts chapter 10, verse 44, we'll read in a number of weeks from now about Cornelius's family, that while Peter's preaching the gospel to them, it's not during the last song. It's not when people lay hands on him. It's during the preaching that the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius's family and they begin to speak with tongues and magnify God. And so speaking in tongues is magnifying God. You might make that in your notes. So it's declaring the marvelous works of God and it's magnifying God. All right. So the gift of the Holy Spirit can be poured out while we're praying, like in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit could be poured out while there's preaching happening, like in Acts chapter 10. Or you'll read in Acts chapter 19, of uh, laying on of hands and the Holy Spirit coming on individuals. In Acts 19.6, it was in Ephesus when Paul laid hands on some disciples of Apollos, and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they prophesied. So we'll get more into a lot of that when we uh, study next week in 1 Corinthians 14. But coming back to our story, I hope you don't mind hopping here and hopping there. We're in the story of what's happening on the day of Pentecost. Quick couple theological tidbits on the gift of tongues. Hopping back over to the story. Here we are back in the story where Peter explains what's going on to the crowd. In verse 14, but Peter standing up with the eleven raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. So, I mean, what a wonderful thing to see Peter standing up. If you remember the last few times that we've seen Peter, 
He's been afraid. He's been denying the Lord. He denied the Lord to a little Jewish schoolgirl outside of Caiaphas' house and a couple other times with cursing. He denied that he even knew Jesus. He ran away. He was uh, in a place of being backslidden. But something happened in his life that would cause him to now stand up and to speak with power in front of the very people that crucified Jesus. It's pretty crazy, right? I believe it was two things. Number one, he saw the resurrected Jesus. That'll change a guy. And number two, the baptism of the Holy Spirit for the power. And so the Holy Spirit essentially says to Peter, three, two, one, go, you're on. Stand up and preach. And sometimes all it takes, you guys, in a situation where it's a ripe moment for the gospel is to just stand up. Just stand up and just let the Lord crack this bad boy open. That's a testimony for me. So many times I didn't know what I was going to say at the moment to preach the gospel, even to a crowd. And the Lord just opened up my mouth and I began speaking the gospel. Uh, And so there's this great boldness in Peter. There will be no denying Jesus today. It was what Chrysostom called manly courage on display. And wherever the Holy Spirit is present, he makes, makes men of gold out of men of clay. And he goes on to correct their assumption that these guys were drunk. Look in verse 15. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. So number one, it's only 9 a.m. I mean, these guys would have a serious problem if it was just a big old party where 120 people got drunk on the Feast of Passover. It's 9 a.m. That's probably not the case. Uh, Secondly, most Jews would fast until the afternoon during the festivals and during the the times of worship in the morning. And so uh, all things are pointing towards they're not drunk. They're not full of too much glucose or sweet new wine made from the sweetest watermelons on the vine. Sorry, little um, country radio going through my head there. Uh, But they were filled with the Holy Spirit, which has an appearance of some sort of vigor in life. A.W. Tozer said, the spirit has an exhilarating effect on the soul, much as wine has on the body. The spiritual man may literally dwell in the state of spiritual fervor amounting to a mild and pure inhibition. Woo! Is that something that describes you? Like if you asked your spouse, like describe my Christianity. Well do I put this in a way that's not going to, you know, uh, well, honey, I would certainly say that you have an exhilarating effect of the Holy Spirit upon you. I feel like you're just dwelling in a state of spiritual fervor amounting to some mild and pure inhibition. Like, has that been used to describe your discipleship with Jesus lately? It hasn't been mine, but we're just coming off of a fast. So, you know, get it. I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, Ephesians chapter five, before you question Tozer too much, in Ephesians five, before Paul talks about relationships in marriage and family he says look guys i know marriage and family it can be hard do not be drunk with wine (laughs) okay don't go that route okay some of us it's like stuff is tough go hit up the wine store okay no 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 he says go be filled with the holy spirit be filled with the holy spirit and that's what we see here they're not drunk with glucose they're not drunk with new wine they're filled with the holy spirit okay Another part here, this is point four concerning tongues, is we're not to let the mockers silence the speaking of tongues. If it were me and I had been a part of this great moment in church history and, uh, and I hear 
Um, the mockers say, oh, they're just drunk. You know, my timid part of me would be like, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's just too, too weird, you know, and, and yet it would continue and be a useful gift within the early church. Paul would end up saying, we'll get to it next week in 1 Corinthians 14, 39, do not forbid to speak with tongues. Oh, well, they think that they're just drunk with wine. So we should just forbid it and put it away. No, Paul says, don't forbid it. Okay. Uh, maybe misuse in, in times, but don't let it take away the proper use. And so Peter says, they're not drunk with wine. It's only 9 a.m. Verse 16, but this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So this isn't revelry happening. This isn't debauchery happening. This is prophecy being fulfilled. And Peter's going to go and uh, have an exposition of Joel chapter 2. He's going to preach from the word right here in a way that the Dead Sea Scrolls calls a persher or an interpretation of an Old Testament passage that's being fulfilled as we speak. And so here he does it. He goes into Joel chapter 2 and he says in verse 17, it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. So Peter takes them to Joel chapter two and gives them this biblical explanation of what the church was experiencing in that moment. And by the way, we should always be doing that at the church. When there's experience that's happening, we want to be able to go to the word and see how is this something that would actually be from the Lord. Number one, he says uh, that we're speaking about last day stuff here. Okay, last day stuff. And so uh, number five on your list or theology of the gift of tongues, uh, the gifts of the spirit are things that will be useful in the last days. Joel chapter two, it'll come to pass in those last days. We'll talk about last days in just a moment because it'll come up again, but I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Joel says this picture of pouring out takes us back to the living water torrenting out of a person's heart, out of a person's life. Stott says it's a picture most likely of a heavenly tropical thunderstorm or rainstorm and seems to illustrate the generosity of God's gifts of the spirit. Sorry, Snoop Dogg. It's not a drizzle. Okay. It's not a shower, but it's a downpour. This is what we're speaking of. I will downpour out my spirit in those days. It's the epi in the Greek, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, flowing out of individuals. And it's something that will be useful in those last days. Stott did say, it is the unanimous conviction of the New Testament authors that Jesus inaugurated the last days or the messianic age and that the final proof of this was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, since this was the Old Testament promise of the end times. And so that began, what we're reading of in Acts chapter 2, began the day of the Lord, okay? The end times, okay? So it's kind of odd because it's been 2,000 years since this happened, but we are living in what's called the day of the Lord. We're living in the church age that's going to usher in the day of the Lord. It's going to lead towards, uh, depending on your theology, the rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation period, the second coming of Jesus, the 1,000-year millennial reign of Jesus here on the earth from Jerusalem on his father David's throne. 
Uh, after that, the great white throne judgment of all sinners without Jesus, and they're cast into the lake of fire. And then finally, the new heaven and the new earth coming down, the new Jerusalem and our heavenly slash earthly home given to us for all the rest of, of eternity. We could be in the presence of the Lord. I hope you're excited by that. You're like, that was a lot. I don't even know what all you're talking about. It's just all that Jesus wins and it's all going to end up good. Okay. Can you handle that much? All right. All right. But the Holy Spirit was given for these end times. All right. You read through the New Testament and you won't come to gifts of the Spirit specifically ceasing uh, with the death of uh, the apostles or the giving of the Bible. Not one reference hints towards that. In fact, in Jesus's great commission in the, in the book of Mark, Mark 16, verse 17, it says that these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons and they will speak with new tongues. Okay. So this will be the signs that follow people who are believers. Casting out demons is a part of it. Speaking in new tongues is a part of it. All right. And so Joel speaks towards the end times, speaks of pouring out the spirit in those end times. Anybody who names the name of Christ can have this overflowing of the Holy Spirit. There's no social distinctions. It doesn't matter if you're a male or a female. It doesn't matter what your rank is in society. You believe in Jesus and have been born again. You receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Sons and daughters will prophesy, Joel says. Young men will have visions. Old men will dream dreams. These are all exciting and wonderful, vivid um, outpourings of the spirit. Martin Luther, though, he kind of lumped them together and said, prophecy, dreams, and visions, they're all really one thing. And Peter goes on to say from Joel verse 18, and on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. So again, outpouring of the Holy spirit on men and women. Is that exciting? You know, it's so liberating, uh, especially for those days where women were oppressed. And just to know that wherever the gospel goes and wherever the Holy Spirit is poured out, women are seen as valuable and having incredible worth and great role within the church. All right. We're going to read in 1 Corinthians 14 that women can prophesy. Pretty cool. All right. Uh, So Luther understood prophecy here, though, as, quote, the knowledge of God through Christ which the Holy Spirit kindles and makes burn throughout the word of the gospel. And Calvin would add to that and say that this prophecy signifies simply the rare and excellent gift of understanding. In fact, it is this universal knowledge of God through Christ by which the Spirit is the foundation of the universal commission to witness. Because we know him, we must make him known. And so essentially, prophecy in the New Testament is a little different than you read it in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, man, when a prophet would prophesy, it's going to come true, and you listen to what that prophet has to say. In the New Testament, even in the book of Acts, prophets will prophesy, things will happen, there will be a famine in Jerusalem early on in the book of Acts, but then there will be other things happen like begging Paul not to go to Jerusalem, bind, the, bind his hands with the belt, don't go to Jerusalem, you'll be, and, and Paul just says, I gotta go. I'm gonna go preach the gospel in Jerusalem. There's not quite the same oomph put it on prophecy in the New Testament. Instead, you see prophecy as still an exciting gift that we can have that is comfort, encouragement, and exhortation to men. 1 Corinthians 14, it's those three things. And really, it's just speaking forth the word of the Lord to people. Evangelizing is prophesying. 
going on with Joel chapter, uh, Acts chapter two, but also from Joel chapter two, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so we see signs that show the end times coming even more. These specifically make us think of those revelation passages during the great tribulation period. And, uh, and essentially we're just reminded that spiritual gifts, the pouring out of the Holy spirit will be in operation up until those latter days, up until the days of the Lord through the end times period. And, uh, and some would say, no, no, no. The gifts of the spirit have ceased with the last of the apostles. And then we'll use a verse like first Corinthians chapter 13 verses eight through 12 Um, where it says love never fails, but whether there's prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part will be done away. And so essentially there's a, an understanding out there that when the word of God was given in the canon of scripture, we have it here. It's a perfect revelation of God. Uh, then then all those other, especially sign gifts and miraculous gifts, they're done away with. And they ceased with the death of the apostle. But I just have to say, that's a bit of a stretch when you study interpretation of the Bible and exegesis of scripture. It's just a bit of a stretch, okay? Now, here's the thing. The wonderful thing is, is what we're studying today, the gift of tongues, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, especially that it's a a work that happens after one is saved, I just noticed I'm counting this way today. That's a new thing. Start with the pinky and go to the ring finger. Um, Those things that we're talking about, these are what we call non-essentials. Can you guys say that? Non-essentials. These are like open-handed issues, okay? You're just going to hear it taught this way at Calvary Prineville, and when you go to a Calvary Chapel, it's the flavor that you're going to get. And believe me, I've come to it open-handed, tried to reason it through with the different ways. Maybe we need to make a shift in how we teach it here at Calvary Prineville. I just haven't landed in any other way, you guys. But the good news is, is that there's a place for you here at Calvary, no matter what maybe your position is on this. I remember we had a, a Baptist, former Baptist pastor, come to the church when I taught through Acts chapter two and I just was preaching on the gift of tongues, you know, and, and, uh, and he just said, man, is there a place for me here at Calvary as a former Baptist pastor? You know, it's like, there's totally a place for you. Uh, but as long as you speak in tongues, no, I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. Um, I said, there's a place for you. You just got to understand, like, it's our conviction as we come to the word that this is something the Lord has for us today. And next week, as we get into more talk about tongues, um, we're going to realize that if it's for today, then it would have great perimeters on its use that I think will help make it palatable and usable and something to rejoice in and not be afraid of, okay? So moving right along, uh, in verse 19 he's talk, and 20, he's talking about end time stuff. In 1 Corinthians 13, a verse that people would use about when that which is perfect has come, it's actually talking about end time stuff as well. G. Campbell Morgan says that every commentator prior to the 20th century understood that 1 Corinthians 13 was referring to Jesus' second coming. When he who is perfect has come, then that which is part will be done away with. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, we'll have the worship team come on up, tells us that we should come short in no gift. And actually, uh, I kind of paraphrased it wrong. 
the Corinthians had come short in no gift. They had every spiritual gift and they were using it like crazy. In fact, they were kind of going overboard with the spiritual gifts and Paul was going to be like, whoa, slow your roll just a little bit. We got to use this stuff rightly, okay? And so he says, you guys have come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's something that we desire for our church. That whether it's tongues or the words of knowledge or words of wisdom or administrations or helps or generosity or compassion and mercy ministries, whatever spiritual gift you may have, and there's a great number of gifts that the Lord gives in the church, that we would come short in none of them here at Calvary. We would just find things, just people are fitting into the place that the Lord has them at Calvary. And that while we're all doing our part in, in our role that God has for us, we're eagerly awaiting for Jesus to come back. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. The last verse here, Acts 2, 21, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you know what? Out of all the great signs and wonders and miracles that are gonna come towards the end days and the gifts of the Spirit, you know the greatest gift of all? The greatest gift is that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. It's the gift of salvation. And so as we close out today, you know, we might be talking about the Holy Spirit and Pentecost, and we might be talking about the gift of tongues and spiritual gifts. And you know what? That might be just a little above your pay grade at the moment, (laughs) because what you need today is to be saved. What you need today is to be forgiven of your sins. What you need today is to be what's called born again or regenerated, to have a new heart placed inside of you, to have a new mind given to you because you're born again and made new. And that happens when you come to Jesus and when Jesus comes to you and you do business with him and you just say, Lord, I've been holding all these things as if this is why I should be found righteous before you and you should let me into heaven and I should be worth something. And now I lay all that aside as your word says, blessed are the poor in spirit. (laughs) I lay all that aside and I just come and say, nothing in my hands do I bring. Simply to the cross do I cling. And I receive the work that you've done on Mount Calvary where you hung on that cross and your blood was shed and your body absorbed the wrath of God for my, in my place. And when you just say that to the Lord, and it doesn't even have to sound like that, you could just say, yes, Lord, save me, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I want to follow you and you'll be born again. New heart, new mind, the Holy Spirit placed inside you. And then the Lord has for you many other wonderful things. But for some of you, it's just the last verse that we talk about. For you today, it's that you would call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Have you ever done that? Can you think of a moment in your life when you've called on the name of the Lord and been saved? Maybe somehow you've kind of been grafted into going to church. I don't know. Just one day my buddy invited me and I just started coming to church. Or maybe you just found yourself just like, you know, maybe even as a kid, like you just kind of found yourself there. And, and that's okay. That's good. You know, you don't have to have like, well, I raised my hand at the Billy Graham crusade or something like that. But at some point, was there a point in your life where you called on the name of the Lord in your heart in your inner person, you called on the name of the Lord and you were saved. I used to have a friend, uh, my pastor had a friend that I have to pick up from the airport, uh, to, uh, bring down to Corvallis and I'd take him out to dinner and I, uh, he was an evangelist, had got saved in prison. And when he got out of prison, he just was like zealous for evangelism. And we're sitting there at the um, restaurant and he goes, 
are you a saved waitress <laughs> to the waitress? She's like, oh, yeah. And the uh, question for you today is, are you a saved person today? Are you saved? Have you been born again? And we'll go ahead and pray right now. And right now where you're at, you can receive Jesus. You can be saved today. Just say, Lord, that's me. I want to be a saved man, a saved woman. I want to be born again. I want to be on your side of things when it all comes down. The blood and fire and vapor of smoke that signifies end times things. And with that, Lord, as a Christian now, I also receive all that you have for me concerning the Holy Spirit. More of the Holy Spirit is what I desire. And as a church, Lord, it's what we desire. And we know that there have been many movements and many men and many churches that have just greatly insulted the work of the Spirit through misuse. But Lord, just let us be able to lean on your word and rest in you that you're a good God. You're a God of order. You're not a God of confusion. You wouldn't give us something that just, it would just be a just complete freak show, embarrassment. But Lord, you've given us the spirit for good purposes of building up the church. The gift of tongues for the purpose of building up ourselves individually. So open us up to all that you have for us at Calvary Prineville. If you guys will stand with me today as we close in this song. Lord, even today we just say, if you would have the gift of tongues for us as a church, just more people praying in tongues in their private life, in their prayer closets. Even today, Lord, just crack open the door in a person's heart to be ready and willing for something like that. To trust you. You're not going to overpower them and make them drop on the floor and convulse and throw up split pea soup or something like that. Lord, you're going you're gonna to give us a wonderful language that will let our souls cry out to you beyond what our words are able. Declaring the marvelous works of God declaring his majesty. Lord, where we have maybe more of a bent towards conservatism and, and kind of that good old Baptist background, Lord, just bump us from that side towards what you might have for us concerning the Spirit. Maybe we're, we come from a background that's just kind of untethered, unrestricted liberty that could be a problem. Lord, bump us from that side. Just give us that well-balanced understanding of the Spirit and the gifts and the gift of tongues. And Lord, we also pray for interpretation of tongues as a church. That in a prayer meeting or in a time of waiting, we would be able to function as a New Testament church. So, fall on us afresh today. Let us experience again the continual filling of your spirit here at Prineville.